All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the crisis in the capital, the truck blockade of Ottawa. Now in week three, Ottawa City Police apparently powerless to stop it. And the pressure is on Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here now to step in, step up, take control, take back the streets of Ottawa. And we're expecting a major day of developments on this file today. Global News and other outlets reporting Trudeau poised here now to invoke the Federal Emergencies Act for the first time in Canada. The Prime Minister saying there are no plans right now to deploy the Canadian military on the streets of Ottawa, though officials in the city, some officials, are calling on him to do just that. All right, we've got awesome coverage on this story for you today. We start today with Wesley Wark, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. He served in the Prime Minister's Advisory Council on National Security. I'm pleased to welcome him back to this show. Professor Wark, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Nice to chat. It's, it's great to have you here. So the Emergencies uh, Act, can you, can you explain what that is and what powers that would give to the government if Trudeau does take this move here today? Sure, I, Mike, I'd say I think it's, it's, uh, it's happening. It's going to happen. Uh, the Emergencies Act will be invoked. It's a legislation, piece of legislation that dates back to 1988, uh, and it's never been invoked in all the years since then. It had a predecessor that was very controversial called the War Measures Act, which was used during the First World War and the Second World War, and then during the, um, the FLQ or October 1970 crisis. But we're essentially talking about legislation that was, that was last looked at in 1988, and certainly Canadians will be unfamiliar with it. It was always regarded as last resort legislation. But the federal government is in a last resort situation, I think, frankly, with regard to dealing with the protest movement, both in Ottawa and other parts of, of the country. And the Emergencies uh, Act gives it some very special powers uh, to, to deal with the act, uh, which I think are, are important and necessary. What do you think about the way this has been handled or, or, or not handled here in the, in the last few weeks, especially when you've got multiple levels of government all trying to sort of pass this hot potato around? You deal with it. I can't do it. The Ottawa police is effectively throwing their hands up, saying they can't do it. Uh, the the justice minister is saying the police have to do it. What do you think of that, the sort of the finger-pointing that's going on? Yeah, it's, it's been uh, uh, terrible, I think. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, there's probably worse uh, exclamations that one can put, could beside it, but it's been a really terrible instance of, of failure of governance and failure to uphold the rule of law. There has been a lot of buck-passing over the last two weeks between different levels of government, federal, provincial, municipal, each wanting somebody else to take charge and take responsibility. You know, and finally, the federal government, I think, has realized that, that the responsibility is theirs because this is a national security crisis uh, that affects both Canada domestically, but also affects Canada's relations with its allies, including the United States. And I think uh, the Trudeau government has been under a lot of pressure from American counterparts to, uh, to deal with this crisis. So they, they finally decided they had to step up. So hopefully the jurisdictional wrangling is is over, although there may be more of that to come, particularly if aid to the civil power is required, the military's help is required. That would that would need a province to step up and ask the federal government to deliver that. Uh, Parliament is going to have to approve this. Um, but I, you know, I think there has been just a terrible failure of governance, uh, allowing a kind of 
clearly unlawfully legal uh, anti-democratic protest to take place for so long, inconveniencing so many Ottawa residents. And if you don't live in Ottawa, it's really hard to imagine how horrible it's been in this in the nation's capital over the last two weeks, yeah. quite apart from closing down key critical infrastructure at, at the border, which has really uh, affected trade. So high time to act. I think in, in addition to the failure of governance, there's been just a terrible intelligence failure uh, at all levels of government, uh, but particularly with regard to the Ottawa police and Ottawa authorities in kind of welcoming this protest movement with, with open arms, allowing the trucks to stream into downtown Ottawa on some kind of naive and innocent assumption that they would behave lawfully and they'd be gone in 48 hours, which is, it's, you know, it's, it's just a terrible naivety, which, which I hope every jurisdiction in Canada will learn from uh, going forward. Speaking to Professor Wesley Wark about the situation in Ottawa, we're expecting the Prime Minister here to invoke the Emergencies Act here shortly. Let's listen to a little bit of that finger-pointing that's been going on. So this is the Federal Emergency Preparedness Minister, Bill Blair, here saying, like, hey, this is up to the Ottawa cops to deal with this. Have a listen. Clearly, it's a very significant and serious public order event, and we all need the police to do their job. And and to that end, we've been working to make sure they have the resources and the tools that they need to do it. But ultimately, it comes down to the police need to restore order, to enforce the law, and 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 to open up those points of entry and to restore public safety in in the city of Ottawa. Okay, so that's the federal minister there pointing the finger at the Ottawa police, saying they've we've given them the extra resources. The police are saying what they still don't have the resources they've asked for. Correct? Wesley? That's right. And, and yeah. it's, it's very difficult for, for any member of the media or the public to know what the true story is because no one's saying, you know, giving us exact numbers of how many additional forces have been provided either from the RCMP or from the Ontario Provincial Police, which is, a, which is another uh, force that apparently is standing at the ready to help, according to the Ontario Premier. But we don't have the exact numbers. And there's certainly no sign on the streets of Ottawa of some you know, uh, flooding in uh, of additional police resources. There's been very, very little enforcement uh, over these past two weeks, and we haven't seen that ramped up. But I think with the invocation of the Emergencies Act, we will see that ramped up because once invoked um, through a, an order of the governor and council, as it's called, it takes yeah. place uh, immediately. And the government will only invoke it if, it's, if it has, a, I, I would hope, a clear plan uh, use its new powers and use them speedily and effectively. Can you comment on the urgency of this situation? Because you, you already hear some people saying, well, this has been a relatively peaceful protest, so we don't want to see extraordinary measures or civil liberties curtailed, or we don't want to see the military deployed. But, I mean, you're there. You're on the ground. You see this every day. I mean, this is set up right outside Parliament, right outside the Prime Minister's office, across the street from the Supreme Court. Like, what, what do you say about the situation that we have on the ground right now? I think it's a deeply troubling protest. I, I describe it as anti-democratic. I think that's what it is. Uh, if there's anything that unifies the protest movement and, and there may at the end of the day not be much that does unify them, it is a, a belief uh, that uh, government is not to be trusted, that government is overreached, that government is intruding on the, you know, the freedoms of however they understand that of ordinary Canadians. It is an anti-government protest. Uh, and that's the worst kind of protest, whether it leads to violence or not. It's the worst kind of protest that any democracy uh, has to face and has to, to face down. 
So I think it, 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 even though it is primarily restricted to downtown Ottawa, it has, it has not been lawful. It has not been respectful. It's not been anything that the Ottawa authorities hoped it would be. It has been a terrible display of unlawfulness and I- illegality. And, and I think the protest movement has been emboldened by the lack of response by any level of government to date. They believe, and you see this in some of the signs, there are all kinds of signs that proliferate um, across a fairly disgusting spectrum. But many of these signs, uh, you know, proclaim that they're on the right side of history. I mean, it's an extraordinary belief on their part, but it, I'm sure it's true. Uh, they're not on the right side of history, but that's, that's what they believe. So there are real believers in, in this crowd. And real believers who believe that they can get away with anything they want to. Okay, we're watching it very closely. Thanks for coming on with your analysis today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Okay, we're keeping a close eye here on what's happening in Ottawa right now. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau set to invoke the Emergencies Act to give the federal government extra powers to handle the blockades that's happening in Ottawa and potentially elsewhere in the country as well. The Emergency Act gives the federal government extraordinary powers to deal with an urgent and critical situation, as it's described under the Act. Former Attorney General Barry Penner standing by. First, have a listen to this. This is Federal Cabinet Minister Bill Blair on using the Emergencies Act in Canada. Have a listen to this. The Emergencies Act has been under very fulsome consideration right from the first day as as to what needs to be done. But the the Emergencies Act, the Federal Emergencies Act, is really contingent upon the the provinces exhausting their authorities um, and and turning to us and saying we need more. And that's why the conversations with the provinces have been so important. Okay, well, it appears that we've reached this point and we expect the Prime Minister to announce the Emergencies Act is being implemented here in British Columbia. Let's check in with Barry Penner, former Attorney General of British Columbia. Barry, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome, Mike. Good to be here. What are your thoughts on what's going on right now? Well, like uh, most Canadians, I'm appalled that it's got to this point. Uh, I guess hindsight is 2020, but obviously once a large group is dug in, it's harder to remove them than it is to prevent them from getting there in the first place and setting up camp the way they have. Um, but uh, we are where we are, uh, and it's uh, very regrettable. And I think there will be long-term consequences uh, going forward for all levels of government. Do you think the Emergencies Act is the right thing to do right now? I can't claim to be uh, familiar with the details of the Emergencies Act. I've, I've heard the description that your previous caller uh, gave it, uh, your previous uh, guest on the show, and I thought he spoke very well. But I, I can't claim to uh, have reviewed the act itself. I, I know it is the successor to the War Measures Act, which a uh, previous Prime Minister Trudeau invoked uh, many years ago. How difficult is it for anyone in a position of authority like this? And, you know, you're speaking as a former attorney general here, often have to make tough calls like this. When you've got a situation like this with a protest right in front of Parliament, right in front of the Prime Minister's office, you've got, you know, Supreme Court justices have to go in the back door to get into the Supreme Court because of the protests that are going on. I mean, how difficult is it for a government, for a politician, a government leader, to say we're going to take extraordinary measures here that potentially suspends the civil liberties of some people in the country? Just like Trudeau's father did during the October crisis. But your thoughts? Yeah, obviously, uh, there's lots of trepidation, and that's why you've seen the federal government be hesitant uh, to move in this direction, uh, understandably. On the other hand, uh, the police have also been reluctant uh, to engage in a significant way 
to start removing uh, the protesters, uh, even to defend the war monument. So um, I think we've got to a point now where people are wondering what else can be done. Um, it, it is a very frustrating situation, and what we've seen play out across the country is other protesters getting emboldened. They think that they can yeah. act with impunity, uh, invoking huge costs to our economy, closing our borders, which is something that I think no federal government should tolerate ever, which is uh, closing our, our borders against our own will. This is entering week three right now, at least with the Ottawa blockade, and we saw that the Ambassador's Bridge was cleared over the weekend. We're going to talk about that today on the show as well, with police moving in, and they were able to clear that bridge. Maybe it's a bit more difficult challenge to clear the streets of of Ottawa right now, but there are also calls to deploy the Canadian military on the streets of Ottawa, and we've heard Trudeau saying that's not on right at least right now but you've even got some ottawa city councillors saying bring in the military bring in the army i'm going to speak to one of those councillors later today what are your thoughts on that the idea of deploying the canadian military in this on our own streets well i'd have a question about that what would they be asked to do um if it is bringing in canadian military engineers to help remove the large trucks uh from blocking important access routes uh that that's one thing. Uh, I understand that the private tow truck companies are resisting uh, or uh, refusing to take on the work of removing these vehicles, uh, whereas the Canadian military does have large equipment that may be able to move those trucks. So that might be, you know, a more limited means or uh, purpose of deploying the military is just to remove those large physical objects. Yeah, I just want one minute left here. I'm speaking to Barry Penner, the former Attorney General of British Columbia. In in the one minute we have left here now, I mean, how difficult a challenge is this? Do you see for authorities in Ottawa right now? Like, it's one thing I think for Trudeau to say, "Okay, we're going to invoke this measure, this Emergency Act measure," but this thing's been dragging on to, into the third week now with no signal from police or any other authorities that they can deal with it. How will an, you know? How do you think this will be resolved going forward here? It remains to be seen, quite frankly. I think greater coordination, obviously, going forward is going to be required. Uh, I know there will be a lot of analysis uh, after this event is over, how to prevent it from happening. I think uh, in the, what, what we can take away right now is allowing these things to reach such a critical mass is simply not, uh, not wise. It just makes it so much difficult to deal with. So I think what you'll see in the future is governments being reluctant to allow it to get to this point. Yeah. and seeking ways to prevent these uh, these kinds of encampments from digging in. Barry Penner, thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, welcome back to the show. Keeping a close eye here on what's going on in Ottawa. We expect Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here to announce that the Federal Emergencies Act is being implemented in Canada for the first time to deal with the blockades. It's still going on in Ottawa. We've seen blockades elsewhere across the country. Uh, including right here in British Columbia. Have a listen to this now. Now, the big one on the Ambassador Bridge between Windsor and Ontario and Detroit, cleared by police on the weekend. Have a listen to this report from Global News. On Saturday, after police arrived, big rigs and most other vehicles gave up on the blockade. Only a few refused to leave, like these two pickup trucks. Police didn't push them out at first, something business groups said was urgently necessary. These disruptions in Canada have an impact on the United States. That's why the U.S. is paying very close attention to this. 
This morning, the approach was different. Police weren't asking protesters to leave. They were telling them. Police approached the drivers of the two trucks. When they refused to leave, police arrested them both. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Flavio Volpe, president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association in Canada. He's been one of the strongest voices speaking out for the businesses impacted by the blockades. Flavio, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on. What is the status of the Ambassador Bridge right now? Is traffic flowing across that bridge today? Yeah, that's right. It's been sustainably reopened, uh, and we're starting to see uh, commercial traffic pick back up again. You know, the, the, the madness in this is that, uh, you know, we had to bring an injunction, uh, the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, together with the, with the Canadian vehicle manufacturers, and then, you know, joined, of course, by the city of Windsor um, to get uh, the law enforced. And we've said throughout all of this, you know, people have a right uh, to hold an opinion and to to vociferously express it, but you don't have a right to stand in the middle of the road uh, on a normal day. I don't know why you would have it uh, uh, at the number one um, commercial boarding uh, border crossing in North America. And so we're happy to see it reopen, but there's lots and lots of questions that still need to be answered. Okay, that bridge is one of the busiest border crossings in the country with hundreds of millions of dollars of goods flowing across it every single day, shut down for around a week. What kind of impact did that have on business, especially your business that was so severely impacted by it, the auto manufacturing sector? We think um, unrecoverable production just on the Canadian side, not, not, uh, not in Michigan and Kentucky and other places that were affected, is about a billion dollars. Whoa. Uh, import- yeah, exactly. Importantly, you know, we, we, we listen to we listen to the noise and you listen to the on-the-spot interviews. We're talking about two pickup trucks on Sunday. So, like, $400 million of good that would have traveled on Sunday didn't because two pickup trucks were there. And at the, at the peak of it, we're talking about 30 pickup trucks. I saw a Hyundai Tucson there, about 100 people. There were no big rigs. This is not a, this is nothing to do with the original sentiment of truckers uh, who weren't vaccinated, who were expressing an opinion. This is a bunch of locals in Windsor doing copycat uh, exercise that only spited their immediate friends and neighbors. Mind-boggling. Speaking of Flavio Volpe, Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association here in Canada, I, I know you're greatly relieved to see that Ambassador Bridge reopened and goods flowing across that bridge once again. We've got other blockades in other parts of the country, notably in, in Ottawa. Does that affect any of your members there when you see that blockade that's continuing to drag into week three right now in Ottawa? Yeah, we have about 10 companies in the Ottawa area, mostly tech companies, so a little different. Uh, then, then uh, you know, truckloads of specific parts that go across uh, here on church, you know, um, but it is uh, disrupting the flow of people back and forth and the ideas and everything else that drives the industry. You know, I, I want to make sure that your listeners understand this isn't just about goods. This isn't just about trucks that were blocked. About 140,000 people in Ontario and, and partially Quebec were on temporary layoff because their neighbors decided that this is what they wanted to do. I think, I think in this country, you know, we, we respect the rule of law. Uh, We also respect the ability for other people to hold different opinions, no question and hold them strong. But what we're seeing at border crossings is unacceptable. 
Right. And when you see the finger pointing that's been going on through this over the last couple of weeks, you see police forces throwing their hands up and saying, we can't deal with it. You get the federal government pointing back at them saying, you have to deal with it, get it done. Uh, We'll give you more resources. Oh, you haven't given us the resources. This sort of political hot potato has been thrown back and forth, back and forth. You deal with it. No, you take it. What what goes through your mind and, and the minds of your colleagues when you see that kind of finger pointing going on? I think we all have job descriptions. You know, uh, your listeners, me, you, um, you got to do your job. Uh, and I see people, it's like the Spider-Man meme, you know, pointing in multiple Spider-Men pointing at each other. You know, in the end, uh, it's, I mean, I want you want you to understand how crazy this is. We sought a court order to get the law enforced. Yeah. And who am I? Like, who are we? We make auto parts. Why are we... You know, like that, like some brave residents in Ottawa who went and got a court order to make sure that people would, that the that the the authorities would enforce sound ordinances. You know, we're in a space now where I think across this country, on all sides of the debate, people are saying, uh, "Who's in charge? Show yourself, express yourself, and let's bring this thing to a conclusion." What do you think about the reports we're hearing out of Ottawa this morning that the Prime Minister is set to invoke the Federal Emergencies Act for the first time that would give the federal government some extraordinary powers to deal with the situation? Does that give you any kind of confidence that this is this is all going to come to an end here anytime soon? Well, it gives me some hope that it's going to come to an end, but we've also seen a lot of expressions over the last few weeks of, of uh, publicly, public office holders saying, this is enough is enough. And then we're, we don't see it on the ground. The emergency measures act is not the war measures act. I think a lot of people were reluctant to say, we want to support, you know, the, the war measures act, you know, uh, military is trained to break things. Uh, that's not what we need here. Emergency measures act is a little different. It's look, can we, can we drive the resources like, uh, federal law enforcement and provincial law enforcement to, to amass and strategize together to uh, clear the illegal uh, occupations and blockade, not, by the way, to uh, to uh, regulate debate and freedom of expression. Go do it. Just get off the damn roads. Flavio yeah. Volpe, thank you for coming on today. Appreciate it a lot. My pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Super busy news day. You heard about those 11 arrests and weapons and body armor seized at that truck blockade at the Canada-U.S. border in Alberta. That breaking news here this morning. Make sure you keep it locked here for more developments on that. Meanwhile, the truck blockade that has paralyzed downtown Ottawa going into its third week here now. Uh, Justin Trudeau is set to announce that the federal government will impose the Federal Emergencies Act for the first time in Canada. And we expect that to be made official this afternoon. So we're watching all of these developing stories here for you this morning. We have more coverage of that coming up later on the show. Make sure you just keep it locked here. Don't go anywhere this morning on a super busy news day like this. As soon as we know, you will know on developments on these stories. Let's talk about another story here closer to home in British Columbia, and that is BC's distracted driving laws, a key case in BC court once again. Okay, check this one out now. You had a Chilliwack driver. His name was Masood Fazel Bakshashi, 
who was convicted in 2021 of distracted driving. He was driving a truck from Kamloops to Hope. He said that he noticed that his cell phone, um, he picked up his cell phone, moved it, and put it on the dashboard of his truck. He says he was not using the cell phone. He was not texting. He was not talking. He just picked up the cell phone and moved it within his truck. Is that distracted driving? Let's find out with Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law. She's a specialist on driving law. Hi, Kyla. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, so this is one that you're one of the top experts on this law and how it's applied in British Columbia. So this is a guy, truck driver, who says, look, I wasn't texting, I wasn't talking, I wasn't calling. I just picked up the phone and moved it, put it on the dash of my truck. Is that distracted driving in, in B.C.? It is. The law yeah. prohibits you from holding the phone in a position in which it may be used. So unless you're holding it some way that wouldn't permit you to use it in any way, you're breaking the law by touching that phone. Okay, well, a police officer in this case agreed with you. This particular driver was ticketed for distracted driving, a $368 fine. He also says that this is even more severe in his mind, I guess. He received uh, penalty points on his driving record and says that ICBC suspended his license for four months. Does that sound right to you? Can ICBC suspend your license for four months for a distracted driving ticket? Yeah, it's very common. If you have wow. your N or if you have a Class 5, um, one ticket with your N, two tickets with a Class 5 license, and you will get a driving prohibition usually between three and five months, depending on your driving record. Okay, well, that's pretty severe, especially if you drive for a living. Now, this guy decided to fight this ticket in court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court of British Columbia, and he lost, right? So he lost. This, the the yes. appeal was turned down. Yes, that's correct. He made his argument again in front of the judge in B.C. Supreme Court, and there were some problems with how his trial took place, but ultimately it was his own evidence that uh, did him in. And what was the evidence that did him in? He admitted that he picked up the phone. He yeah. testified <laughs> that uh, he couldn't see his phone in his car. He located it. He picked it up and moved it so he could put it on his dash, and that was enough for, for him to be found guilty. Right, because once you touch the phone, you're hooped, right? I mean... You're caught. You're red-handed if you've touched the phone. Even if you're not texting, not calling, you're not using the phone in any way, you just move the phone. You're done. Yeah, it's, it, the law is so broad that it prohibits just holding the phone. So right. if you don't want to get in trouble and you want your phone to be on your dash, put it on something that's going to keep it from moving from that position. Don't touch it. Okay, so this is a B.C. Supreme Court judgment now that reinforces this law and how it's applied in B.C., you're not surprised this guy lost, right? No, I'm not surprised. Yeah. And, you know, if I had been running the trial, I probably wouldn't have had him testify. <laughs> yeah, I mean, would you have even ap- appealed it? I mean, once... No. It, yeah. Why not? No, it's not a case, it's not a case that, that lended itself to an appeal. There wasn't a new legal issue to be determined there. It was, you know, I think... And this was an individual who was self-represented. So, you know, you can't fault him for taking all the steps he did to try and fight the ticket. But um, the law is very clear. As soon as you hold it, you violated the law. And there's nothing right. that a B.C. Supreme Court judge can do because it's set in stone in the Motor Vehicle Act. Right, and that has now been upheld by the B.C. Supreme Court. My guest is Kyla Lee, lawyer with Acumen Law. Kyla, do you think the law is, is that fair? Uh, you know, a fair interpretation of the law or application of it or the way the, I guess the law, is, the way it's written is pretty clear. If you touch the phone, it's distracted driving, even if you're not texting or calling. What do you think of that? Is that fair to drivers? 
I mean, I think the law is not fair to drivers, because if you look at the situation, it wasn't particularly distracting, although the evidence at trial was that when he did this, he did kind of swerve in his lane. But, you know, generally just picking up your phone or holding it, having it tucked under your leg, all of those things are not prohibited. But if you're not looking at it and it's not actually taking your attention from the roadway, it isn't that public safety risk that the legislature is aimed at. And I think the law is overbroad for many of those situations. What if you pick up or touch some other object in your car? Like what if you move the uh, backpack or a, a purse or... You know, you pick up your cup of coffee to take a sip of coffee. And none of that is, yeah, none of that is expressly prohibited by the law. You could technically get a ticket if it did cause some type of a driving incident that distracted you. You could get a ticket for driving without due care and attention. It's actually a more serious ticket than distracted driving um, because it's six points instead of four. But the likelihood of actually being uh, charged with or convicted of that offense for something as simple as drinking from your coffee or moving your backpack is so slim because the law is not applied that way. Okay, so Kyla, you've uh, you fought a lot of these cases in court. So let's say a client came to you and said, I got a distracted driving ticket. I don't think it's fair. I want to fight it. I want to, I want to appeal it. What, like the way the law is written, it sounds like it's, it sounds like it's so widespread widely encompassing that it's difficult it's difficult to fight a distracted driving ticket and win or can you you can fight them and win um it's about knowing what the law permits and what the law doesn't permit and and making sure that the conduct that your client is engaged in is on the permissible side of that law or at least in the gray areas where you could argue for an interpretation of the law that supports what they were doing but in situations where they're blatantly in violation of the law which is many distracted driving cases you know, the defense is more about trying to um, negotiate a better result outside of court than a conviction that would be inevitable if the matter went to trial. What what kind of evidence is required to be presented in order to secure a conviction in a case like this? Like, so let's say you, you're you rung up on distracted driving because you did what this guy did. You picked up your phone and moved it. Uh, not using it, you just touched the phone and you get a ticket for that. Now you're in front of a judge. What kind of evidence is is required? Like, is it just based on the word of the police officer? I saw this driver touch the phone. Therefore, you're done. You're guilty. Is is that will the judge make declare you guilty at that point? If they accept the evidence of the police officer about their observations, yes. Um, There's often a bunch of confirmatory evidence that the officer gets at the time that they're serving the ticket. People will often apologize or make an admission that they were using the phone, or they'll provide the explanation, oh, I was just moving it, I wasn't talking. And as soon as you say something like that to the police, that can be used against you. All right, talking distracted driving with Kyla Lee. Lots of calls here. Kelly and Ladner. Hi, Kelly, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I was just going to say, I guess the reason they have that law is because um, you don't want a gray area, and there can be so many gray areas. Um, Oh, I just looked at my phone, or oh, I just just accidentally, you know, like I have a friend who just puts his uh, car in, car, his phone in the trunk, and that's (laughs) it. He's just not, he doesn't, you don't get uh, tempted. Yeah, that's a good way to... That's a good way to take away the temptation for sure. You just lock it up in the trunk. Kyla, your thoughts? I, I mean, I agree with that or, or put it in the glove box. And they do want to avoid gray areas when drafting legislation. The problem with the distracted driving law, as we've seen from cases that have come from the courts over the last decade, is there have been too many gray areas, which has left people completely confused and not knowing what the law actually is. Yeah. Robert in Kelowna. Hi, Robert. 
Hi, uh, I, I agree with it because you get really annoyed when you get to a stoplight and somebody's on their phone. But I just want to tell you something else that happened to me. It's got to do with drinking driving where it changed my whole mind. Uh, but 40 years ago, uh, I was in Winnipeg. I went to a wedding and into a social. And I got like way, way over the limit. I had an over, uh, uh, a sergeant that was off duty, pulled me over. I got, did the breath lives and I like, was way out. I went to the judge and this is like 40 years ago. I got six months suspension, $400 fine. And it straightened me out because I lost my license for six months and I would have lost my job. And I think the, the laws are good. Put them in place. Maybe people will learn. Look at seatbelts. Don't wear your seatbelts. You get a fine. Thank you for the call. Kyla. Yeah, the law has gotten a lot more strict in the last uh, several years. Now, depending on what your blood alcohol reading is, the minimum fine may be as high as $2,000, and it's a mandatory minimum one-year driving prohibition and an automatic criminal record for impaired driving. Kevin and Langley. Hi, Kevin. Go ahead. Hey, Mike and Kyla. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, Definitely cell phones. You go to any stop sign or stoplight right now, and you'll see five cars at least somebody staring at their phone. But yeah. uh, what happened to me, I was in uh, downtown Langley, stuck waiting for the 150-car CN train to go by in park, two kids in the back, and I reached back and handed them my phone. Um, you know, a little babysitter oh. tool sometimes, unfortunately. But anyways, I get pulled over, got nailed. The uh, 386 was the fine. I disputed it. Oh. And I actually uh, worked out a plea where I took an online distracted driving course 10 questions just on the internet, printed it out so I had it with me, and we worked out a plea in uh, reduction of the fine, and I donated the fine to the Langley Food Bank. Um, wow. So the, the, the law is plain and simple, right? If it's in your hand, you're going to get caught. No matter what your excuse, you're going to be found guilty. Um, it's best to work out a plea. How, how, did you, how, how did you work out that plea? With the judge? I, I present, uh, the officer and I talked before the, we went in, um, and it was something when she, when Crown uh, gave their opening spiel, uh, it was presented to the judge, and um, th- that was the ruling. Okay, interesting. Kyla, what do you think of that? That is one way to deal with cases where it's pretty clear-cut that a person has done it, is, is try and do some rehabilitation. There are a number of online courses that people can take to deal with uh, distracted driving or bad driving generally, and those can be quite compelling um, when dealing with police and with the judge in court. Okay, Tyler in Kelowna. Hi, Tyler, go ahead. Hey, Mike, thanks for taking my call. Um, I had a distracted driving ticket last year and um, actually pulled up to a stoplight. They had a police officer up on the second floor of a local business kind of eyeing down to see if people were um, on their phones or not. And I had a scheduling book that was on my center console that slid off and kind of by the the gas and the brake pedal. So I grabbed it because it was dangerous, put it on my dash, and uh, 100 yards down the road I was pulled over for distracted driving, and my phone was sitting in the the special holder I have in my um, car vent. So uh, they didn't believe me. It was basically my word against the the cops, and... uh, I had to pay, you know, the $368 fine plus plus my points. I got in the mail a few months later, which was a surprise to me. Oh, so so you're saying that you did not touch your phone. You t- you picked up a, a scheduling book, but they thought it was your phone? Is that right? Yes. I yeah, see. it was, you know, uh, it was a little tiny black book that I just keep for all my scheduling for, for work purposes. And it slid off my, uh, my center console and I grabbed it because it was by my brake pedal. I didn't yeah. want it to, you know, interrupt with the, uh, you know, the gas or the brake when I was driving. 
set that on the seat, and uh, yeah, he basically said it was my word against his. And when the when I got pulled over, my cell phone was sitting in my my little holder in the you know in the vent and, there, and, and, did, and did they you, still gave me a ticket. Did you just pay the ticket, or did you dispute that? Well, I tried to set up a court date, and then it just got to a point where you know I just you know didn't have the time uh, to do it. I'm super busy at work, so I just ended yeah. up going in and, and paying the fine and just kind of biting the bullet on it. But I didn't realize at the time that I was going to get a bill in the mail for another four points. You know, three or four months later from ICBC. Okay, okay. Well, thank you for sharing that story, Kyla. Your thoughts? Maybe this guy should have called you and hired you. <laughs> Well, I've, I've dealt with lots of cases like that. It's really common when police officers see something small and black. It can be a wallet. It can be a, a little notebook. It can be a calculator, although that might be distracted driving. Um, mm. Even I saw a case once with somebody having their Costco card in their hand, and police officers mistook it for a cell phone and gave a person a ticket. Okay, but can you, would a, would a judge buy that? explanation though like you know he you heard him say there the police officer said to him look it's your word against mine you're you're going to lose all you have to do is raise a reasonable doubt so if Mm. you're you know not shaken in cross-examination by the police officer and your evidence makes sense then there's a good chance that in a situation like that you could end up being acquitted okay john in vancouver hi john go ahead john Okay. Yeah. You, you snooze, you lose. Ron in New West. Hey, Ron, go ahead. Okay, we don't have Ron. All right. Thank you for all the calls. Kyla, thank you for coming on today. If uh, if people are looking to get a hold of you, have you got, you got a website? Yep, they can go to VancouverCriminalLaw.com or KylaLee.ca. Kyla, thanks for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Uh, all right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about yesterday's Super Bowl now. I thought it was a pretty good game, but it was the halftime show that really got a lot of attention. It was the first time that hip-hop and rap occupied the center of the concert for the halftime show at the Super Bowl. And man, oh man, I'll tell you, it was a, it was really something. And the halftime show drawing reviews, uh, rave reviews on social media. Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Mary, Day, Mary J. Blige, Eminem, Kendrick Lamar. Yeah, it was quite a show to say the least. Let's check in with Eric Alper, Canadian music publicist and commentator. That Eric Alper on Twitter, 800,000 Twitter followers. Hi, Eric. Hey, man. So, like, keep in mind, 800,000 Twitter followers, but I only know three people in real life. So, okay. it's, uh, it's all good. <laughs> what, did you th- what did you think of that? Them. What did you think of the halftime show? It was great, yeah. yeah. And it's about time, too. You know, and no surprise, the NFL is, you know, primarily a Republican audience. It's been a very rock and roll and a very white, you know, audience when it comes to the, the halftime show. In fact, Mary J. Blige was the halftime special guest 20 years ago. And although that they've had rap and hip-hop performers in the past, it's always been to supplement what everybody else was kind of doing on stage. But this is the first time that Dr. Dre and uh, and his friends and the whole Death Row Records um, kind of roster got to got to take it over and at a crucial time not only in america with what's going on with the black lives matter movement and the racial inequality that's going on um but the fact that you know dre was setting up his shop 
his record label, The Artist, not too far from where the game was played last night in Compton. And so he got to bring, you know, the people that are on his his roster, like Mary J. Blige and Eminem, uh, Kendrick Lamar and uh, Snoop Dogg, among others. Yeah, no, it was really incredible. You got all these huge hip-hop stars there, and they went through a, a pretty complicated set of songs and choreography, and I thought they just really nailed it. Like, it was really, really cool. And the reactions from people online and everywhere else, like LeBron James, I'm just taking a look at his Twitter feed. Wow, he says, the greatest halftime show that I've ever seen. Like, where do you rank it, Eric? Do you rank it near the top of, of Super Bowl halftime shows? Yeah, I it, for for me personally, this is number two, right behind Prince. Only Prince, because yeah. Prince was just a master of a fifteen-minute performance. I mean, when Prince did his halftime performance a couple of years ago, he asked for the organizers to make it rain harder because he yeah. thought it would add more effect. Like this is what it kind of zipping on a different planet than Prince was on. But the ability that you know all of the actual set design took seven minutes to set up and seven minutes to tear down again. So that was epic in itself. But the fact that, you know, these buildings rolled into different halves of one another, when put together, you had all of the hot spots of the city of Compton on the other, and then the MLK monument outside Compton City Hall. Cam's Burgers was there. This is one of the most legendary local hangouts of Dre and Eminem and 50 Cent and all of those artists when they were first starting out. So the fact that they created this miniature city literally just steps away from Inglewood SoFi Stadium where the game was played um, was, wasn't just legendary. It was uh, very symbolic of just how far those artists and America has come, especially with the acceptance of hip-hop and rap music. Yeah, no, I really, I think I was right on. I was speaking to Eric Alper, Canadian music publicist, and who, which performance stood out the most for you last night, Eric? Like, as I was watching it, Kendrick Lamar, like, I thought his performance was great. Actually, I actually checked with my son, because he's a Kendrick Lamar fan. I go, that's, is, that's Kendrick Lamar, right? He goes, yeah, that's Kendrick Lamar. I thought, well, you guys pretty, <laughs> he was pretty good. Like, I thought that was great. Your thoughts? Yeah, and, and yeah, and for for people that don't really know about him, his last album called "Damn" was the first non-classical, non-jazz album to ever receive the Nobel Prize for music in right. its history. Yeah. That's how good it was. But you know, the I, I think the last couple of moments really stood out for me, especially with Eminem kneeling at the end yeah. and Dr. Dre playing the piano notes of an old Tupac song that paid tribute to Tupac. Because the rumors were that maybe they'll have a hologram of Tupac or maybe they won't. But just so that nobody kind of flips out for the rest of the day, the NFL knew that Eminem was going to be kneeling. There were a number of publications immediately that called literally for Eminem's head, that they, they broke NFL rules. The spokesperson said that they had watched the show during multiple rehearsals that week. They knew step-by-step step what was going to be happening and that the NFL said that there would be no repercussion for anybody players, coaches, or performers who decide to make a political statement and take the knee. So that, to me, was a, a, a moment that will live on as one of the greatest moments is of him, you know, taking that stance on in a sport where 
it kind of, you know, a little bit washed over what was happening with Black Lives Matter and Colin Papernick specifically and the way that he was treated. So the NFL has certainly a lot to answer for still about how yeah. it treats its, its black players, but Eminem certainly took a stand last night. Yeah, you know, he really did, and that's another one that j- jumped out for my family as we were watching it yesterday, and my son, who's like a, a hip-hop fan, he goes, oh, Eminem is taking the knee. And I was like, okay, like the NFL, did the NFL tell him not to do that? Is that was that the significance of that? He was ordered not to do it, and he did it anyway? No, oh, no. Okay. There, there was a number of published reports that said that the NFL told him not to do it, but the NFL has come out immediately after that performance and said that they knew he was going to do that. Okay. They didn't, yeah, so that they, they knew. I mean, you just don't get to do these kind of things in front of a billion and a half people. Yeah, okay, and the significance of that one, so you put up, you, you rank Prince number one. It's probably going to be difficult to dislodge that one from your number one on your list, the Prince performance. The only way that it's going to dislodge is if Prince comes back. Okay. <laughs> another, another Super Bowl. But that was really good. That's got to be number two. And I think people like you 2 and Bruce Springsteen are easily in yeah. the top five, but that was definitely one for the ages, for sure. You know, it was the first Super Bowl that I that I knew who all the performers were and all of the people <laughs> in the commercials. So I'm getting up there in age now. <laughs> Eric, thanks for coming on with your thoughts. Appreciate it. Nope, no problem. Thanks for having me, man. Uh, you, you bet. Thank you. Eric Alper there, music publicist and commentator at that Eric Alper on Twitter.